Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that was The Tiger by William Blake. That's right. Classic poem and one that ties into today's episode because we're going to be talking about predators like the tiger. And I do think some of uh, the initials, initial concerns that we're going to be discussing here, the initial questions about the nature of predators, um, are closely mirrored in this poem and some of the questions it's asking. So here's a here, this week in Strange Religious Beliefs. <laughs> Robert, have you ever heard about the uh, – there is a young earth creationist idea among some young earth creationist Christians, an idea that the Tyrannosaurus rex was a herbivore. Have you ever encountered this before? Uh, among young earth creationists? Or their literature. I oh. don't mean personal. No, I make it a point to avoid young earth uh, creationist thoughts on dinosaurs and prehistoric <laughs> creatures to the point – uh, that I found a, a, such a book in a lending library once, and I took great pleasure in uh, moving it directly from the lending library to the garbage where it belongs. <laughs> well, I mean, that's in some ways a noble task. This is a book peddling lies to children, but often with great illustrations. Well, you, uh, yes, it makes it, them even more effective. Uh, but yeah, so so you're saying like, say what now? Tyrannosaurus Rex was a herbivore? Yeah, that, that just runs counter to everything that I've, I've ever read. Now, I want to be clear. I don't want to be unfair. Uh, this is not generally a belief held among Christians or anything like this. This is specifically a subset of young earth creationists who believe this. But if you just Google it, you'll find all kinds of fundamentalist literature arguing that the T-Rex and all other dinosaurs were herbivores. They ate exclusively plants. And to be very clear, this is false. Yes. All evidence points to the Tyrannosaurus rex having a meat-based diet. Uh, there's some debate actually over whether the T-Rex was primarily a hunter-predator or was primarily a scavenger of dead animals. And we can come back to that in a minute. But more Logical analysis of the T-Rex skull alone will tell you very clearly that this is a meat-eating animal. It's got the teeth of a meat-eating animal. It's got the skull and jaw shape of a meat-eating animal. Uh, it looks like it was built for applying crushing bites to prey animals and then powerfully pulling its head to move the animal's body or to rip away flesh. Now, as for the question of whether these mighty theropod dinosaurs were primarily hunter-predators or scavengers, we discussed one strong piece of evidence uh, that the theropod relative of the T-Rex, the Allosaurus, was a predator in our Cambodian Stegosaurus episode. You remember that, Robert? Oh, yes. Uh, it was another weird intersection between religious beliefs and dinosaurs. But anyway, in that episode, we talked about the Allosaurus, who clearly died from an injury in a fight with a Stegosaur. It got a thagomizer spike right to the crotch. And the way the bone has been preserved, it's clear that that's what happened. This is the opinion of the paleontologist Robert Bacher, um, that, that it died in a fight with the stegosaur. It, uh, and so, of course, that really makes it look like the Allosaurus was a predator. It seems like it'd be unlikely that a scavenger would get thagomized in the crotch like that. Uh, so it was trying to attack prey. But anyway, the question is, why would somebody for religious reasons believe that meat-eating dinosaurs were actually herbivores? Like, I don't remember anything in the Bible about the T-Rex. No. Uh, so I've tried to look up the reasoning behind people who believe this, and it seems to be sort of a consequence of other beliefs. So the people who have written on this, they sometimes refer to a passage in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. It's verses 29 to 30, and it says, quote, 
And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So that's a verse that generally says, hey, animals, time to eat some vegetables. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, also, there seems to be more broadly a widespread belief that meat eating would represent some kind of compromise to the idea of the original creation of the world as perfect. It would imply that Eden was not truly a perfect paradise. Well, I guess it is kind of an interesting theological question, right? I mean, could could Eve have really messed things up all that much if prior to the fall there were predators feeding on other creatures young or you had parasite-induced blindness occurring uh, or, or even something as victimless as a buzzard tearing into a, a dead antelope. These are, uh, I think because these are nasty images, mm-hmm. people tend to assume that like, oh, well, if that were to take place, it would definitely foul the balance of creation. Yeah, if, if there were tigers in the garden, then we can't possibly envision them as anything. But then to, to try and imagine, say, a tiger, try to imagine yeah. a tiger in the Garden of Eden Uh, If it's doing anything other than what tigers do, then uh, it just doesn't make sense. We we can't possibly imagine the tigers anything but what it is because everything they are is a meat eater. To envision an herbivore tiger is to envision either a possible like downstream evolutionary form, something on the level of, say, a giant panda (laughs) – or something so far back in evolution that it scarcely resembles a cat at all. Mm-hmm. Like to, to put it in a, in a frame of reference here, the first terrestrial herbivore probably appeared on land about 290 million years ago. Yeah. And it would not have looked like a tiger. Now to come back to uh, uh, The Tiger by William Blake, mm-hmm. uh, one of the ideas that it's asking is just like – to, to be very literal uh, with the poem, is how can the same God who made the lamb, this sweet, gentle lamb, also make this ferocious tiger? Right. Uh, did he smile his work to see? Yeah, did he who made the lamb make thee? Right. Um, though, side note, um, for Blake here, uh, we, the humans, kind of made the lamb. Like, we domesticated that. That's kind of oh, yeah. our thing. Whereas the tiger is really, ultimately, of the two animals, the more perfect, uh, you know, vision of creation, if right. you want to get technical. Yeah, that's a good point. But but I think this is, like, basically this poem and some of these uh, young earth creationist ideas are kind of emerging from the same thing. Like, how do we square uh, carnivorous um, biology? How do we square predation mm-hmm. in this kind of idealized version of life? Right. Well, the implication of this belief, whether stated or unstated, is that a perfect world would be a world without meat-eating, right? No predators, no scavengers. Now, this is not going to be primarily an episode about the ethics of human meat-eating. I right. think there are questions to ask about you know, humans who know better, like what would be the correct choice of how to live. But I wanted to talk about this issue because I want to make the case for the practical necessity of carnivory in nature, how in reality a a world without predators and scavengers would not be a perfect world. It would probably be a much worse world, a world that we would not like at all for many reasons and perhaps even worthy of being called a herbivorous hell. (laughs) Predators and scavengers are important. They play an important role in food chains and ecosystems, and they play a role that we have plenty of evidence directly benefits human beings on Earth. We would not like this planet without predators and scavengers. But if you just observe the way we talk about them, the way they feature in our narratives, and the way we treat them in reality, you wouldn't know this was the case, right? No, no. You just would assume, yeah, that the tiger is this threat. I mean, clearly it's the villain of the Jungle Book. How else are we supposed to feel about it? Yeah, and it's all there in our mythology. I mean, there's always like some kind of evil predatory animal or a monster that's some kind of bigger, messed up version of a predatory animal uh, and that we, we vilify and we cast as a thing that must be killed in order for us to survive. Yeah. I mean, to go back to our episode on the first monster, what is arguably the first monster depicted in, in human uh, artifacts? But a lion-headed human. Yeah, exactly. It it takes on – it's a human who has the characteristics of a predatory animal. And there are plenty of good reasons that predators and scavengers are often feared and that they do really frustrate people. And it goes way beyond just direct attacks on humans. I mean, one of the biggest problems – If you're going to consider real problems caused by predatory animals in the world, one of the biggest problems is livestock depredation. You know, as soon as we had animal agriculture – 
predators could prey on the herds of domesticated animals that we created and that's a, a real like loss of wealth from the humans who maintain those herds. But then also we – you know, there, there are other things like attacks on pets and uh, hosting diseases and parasites and these are real things that are motivations for humans. But we want to stress again today, a world without predators is not a world you want. So what happens when we intentionally or inadvertently, you know, wage a, a war of extinction against our betters in the food chain? Our betters? <laughs> well, yeah, in, in many cases, our betters. Uh, let's explore a few examples uh, with the caveat here that we're going to ignore cases in which humans have dealt with invasive predators. Right. Which is – which, of course, can be difficult in and of itself, but is ultimately an attempt to kind of balance the scales that we upset. Right. By introducing a, a predator into a range where it's not originally been, we might be upsetting an ecosystem that was stable on its own. Right. So in most cases, predator eradication efforts or general predator culling or control efforts, they stem from this human unbalancing of the natural environment. And it usually goes down about like this. So you have predators and prey and they live in an evolved balance. Yeah. Then humans come along, they move into the area. What do they do? Well, they start building stuff and expanding. That leads to habitat loss uh, for the, the natural uh, uh, organisms that live in the area, including the predators. Mm -hmm. And then predators are killed or driven off when they encroach upon human territory. And then humans are raised domesticated food species. And then predators are drawn to those food species. Uh, the lambs that, you, that we have framed. Exactly. And then, uh, and then the predators are killed or driven off as a result of it. Yeah. It creates a tough situation. I mean, we can look to, to examples of it in today's world. For instance, in modern Botswana, uh, there's this need to protect both valuable cattle and threatened lion species. Yeah. Uh, local cattle farmers frequently resort to violent retaliation against the predators. Uh, and then, again, the, the lions themselves are endangered. There are only about 30,000 lions left in the wild. Right. So conservationists don't want to see the lions killed. But then again, if you're a farmer and lions are attacking your cattle, you can very well understand why the farmer feels that way. Right. Uh, now, incidentally, there's a, there's a really interesting uh, potential solution. I don't know if you call it a solution as much as maybe a Band-Aid for the scenario uh, that has uh, been explored, but a conservation biologist, Dr. Neil Jordan, has actually rolled out a program to paint eyes on the rear ends of cattle huh. to help deter lion attacks. Uh, not unlike anti-tiger masks that you uh, sometimes see in, uh, I believe, parts of India. Uh, or also just sort of the naturally evolved uh, use of eye spots on uh, various insects. And there's evidence this is actually effective? Yes, there is some evidence. Uh, I, um, I, I reported on it, I want to say like a year, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. So I haven't checked in to see what the latest data is. But at the time, uh, the data was encouraging that it was at least in the, I mean, at least for the short term, cutting mm -hmm. down on some of these predation uh, instances. That's really interesting. I mean, that goes along with some of the advice that I know this is this is probably not blanket advice, so don't use this as your survival tactics. Mm -hmm. But I know at least in some discussions about how to deal best with encounters of wild predators, like if you encounter, I think, maybe a bear or a mountain lion or something like that out in the wild, I've definitely heard advice before that you should not turn your back and run mm -hmm. because that can very easily – trigger, you know, chase impulses. So what you want to do is remain facing the animal, make it clear that you can see it and try to put distance between you and it, you know, backing away. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that sort of makes sense. I mean, an animal should be able to see where other animals are looking. And if it thinks you are not looking at it, that is an, a chance for an attack. Now, another uh, good example are wolves. Wolves have faced and continue to face a similar plight in North America. So tr humans trot out all of these domesticated prey species, organisms that are really in many ways trapped in a perpetual adolescence, mm -hmm. which is key because in the natural world, that is where you see a lot of the predation. You see the predators preying upon the young or, you know, the, the enfeebled, the, the old, yeah. the sick. But through domestication, we've made sure that these species remain ideal prey for us. So it's, uh, you know, it's not a huge mystery as to why they're ideal prey for various obligate carnivores out there. Yeah. So the American gray wolf is, uh, this is, I found this uh, super interesting. It is the modern American wolf. Now, what does that mean? So as Carl Zimmer uh, pointed out in a 2016 New York Times article on the subject, genomic evidence reveals that the eastern wolf and the red wolf, uh, previously, you know, considered to be two separate varieties of wolf, those are actually just mixtures of wolf and coyote DNA. Oh, interesting. So they're just, they're hybrids 
Uh, but the one true wolf is the gray wolf. Well, I mean, it's been interesting to see as urbanization has happened throughout the United States, especially in the 20th century, the way that wild carnivorous canids have adapted to human spaces. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we talked in our urban evolution episode about the coyotes of American cities. They're all over the place. And they they find ways of surviving alongside us that we barely even detect. Yeah. So as of 2017, this is the most recent data as of this recording, uh, there are roughly 5,680 gray wolves remaining in the lower 48 states. Oh, wow. That doesn't Uh, sound like that many. No. Uh, Now, Alaska has between um, 7,700 and 11,200. But uh, Canis lupus, uh, the gray wolf, once ranged from the Rockies to New England. And it's been vict- uh, been victim to anti-predation efforts to protect livestock, uh, hunting, trapping, baiting, and some pretty pervasive scare tactics about the nature of the wolves themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, to be clear, wolf attacks have occurred in North America, but they are rare. And even when they, they do occur, uh, they're, you know, they're not, there's not just one type of wolf attack. Right. You can, for instance, chalk some of them up to uh, defensive uh, attacks and then also uh, rabies uh, could be a factor as well in some of these cases. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the the wolf is a perfect test case for, mm-hmm. for people uh, to th- they can see what the danger of being near a wolf is. Like if you're told there's a wolf in your neighborhood, you can immediately envision like, oh, I can see how that could go bad. I could be out in the yard and a wolf could attack me. But you don't understand or easily visualize the other side of the equation, what the downsides can be if there's not a wolf in your neighborhood. And indeed, there are many neighborhoods where there, there end up being no wolves. And sometimes those neighborhoods are something like Yellowstone National Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting case, and this was outlined by a science writer and rewilding advocate uh, George uh, Monbiot. Uh, he points out that wolves were in, reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park in 1995, uh, a Yellowstone that by that point was overrun by deer without predators to control their numbers. Mm-hmm. And the results were pretty amazing, he lays out. So they introduced the wolves back into, into the park. The wolves, of course, killed some deer as would be expected. But then this also changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding essentially dangerous areas of the park, mm-hmm. areas that were were not a good place to, to hang out in if there were wolves about. And these places began to grow again, to regenerate. Uh, tree height here increased dramatically in some areas, he says. Uh, certain bird species moved back in. Uh, beavers and uh, Beaver numbers increased. And between the wolves changing the essentially the the prey species landscape here and the beavers altering the ecosystem as well uh, they both worked to make room for other species to thrive uh, wolves killed coyotes and uh, ra- and this allowed rabbit and mice populations to begin to rise bringing in hawks weasels foxes badgers carrion birds to uh, to scavenge after all of this bear populations also rose in part because there were now more berries from the shrubs that actually were able to grow and this is often expressed in terms of a a top predator in an ecosystem being a, a keystone species a species that's sort of like necessary to allow the rest of the ecosystem to thrive as it normally would exactly and so in this example of what happens when you put a predator back in to uh, an environment uh, we're essentially seeing environmental collapse in reverse. Uh, th- what, what we're talking about here is widespread uh, trophic cascades. These are ecological changes that start at the top of a food chain uh, and then spiral all the way down. So, yeah, apex predators are not just monsters that live atop, uh, you know, a, a mountain of bones and, and feast on, the, you know, the riches of the things it, it preys upon, like some sort of storybook monster. No, the, 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 the mountain wilds have, have evolved with it. And then for everything depends on the predators for balance. Yeah, there is a sort of mythological model of the predator as oppressor. It's almost like the predator is the tyrant king of yeah. the animal kingdom because it preys on other animals. But really – the the oppressor, the the tyrant ruler of the animal kingdom is the finitude of energy, is the scarcity of resources. Mm-hmm. And the, the predator is subject to that too. And you remove the predator, it's not the case that all other organisms necessarily do well if the predator is gone. Instead, what you find is that the tyrant of energy scarcity and food resource scarcity and all of that – expresses itself in new ways, begins to ex- uh, to oppress organisms in ways that didn't happen when the predator was there. Yeah, I mean, as we've touched on before, it, it's not like if you're the apex predator, it's just fat city. 
um, you know, the, the life of a predator also is filled with challenges and has, a, and has yeah. a fragility to it. Yeah, I mean, when you when you see an image of a predator chasing prey, you should think the prey's life is on the line, but the predator's life is also very likely on the line. The predator needs that energy to to survive, and if they don't make a catch soon, they might not survive the next winter. Exactly. And that's not even taking into account humans hunting you towards extinction or making, uh, you know, exploitive movies about you attacking, uh, you know, uh, 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 nude bathers or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think about the vilification of sharks. Uh, I often think of the vilification of sharks as a thing of the past, you know. Uh, I think like, okay, Jaws came out and then there was a brief period in which people saw sharks as these horrible human eaters that had to be destroyed – but I guess my general impression is things have gotten better. In, in more recent years, a conservation mindset has caught on. People know better than to suggest we should just run around killing sharks and other uh, marine predators. But that's not always the case. Even recently, even beyond just pure poaching, there have been public campaigns against shark populations and intentional efforts to kill sharks in certain areas. Robert, have you ever read about shark drum lines before this? No, but they sound pretty groovy. Yeah, they're not so groovy. Oh. This is a thing I, I didn't know about before I was reading about this. But it's uh, – so it's a lethal trap to capture and kill sharks. Uh, just one example is uh, I was looking at a paper from 2015 about how in 2013 and 2014, the government of Western Australia decided that sharks represented a threat to human safety, to swimming around beaches. So they elected to put out these drum lines to kill the sharks in those areas and protect human bathers. And basically the way it works is that you have an anchored buoy and then the anchored buoy is connected to what's known as a drumline buoy, a floating buoy that itself has a, a triggering magnet um, and then it's got a hook that's baited. And so the sharks go and bite the hook and then they get stuck and then it sends off a signal to let people know, OK, we've caught one. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, there were just these traps set up and there was great controversy about it in Australia because there was obviously you know, people were saying like we, we don't need to be killing sharks. Maybe it would be better to change the places we swim than to just kill all these animals. Yeah, that does not sound good. I, I, I was thinking of shark drum circles. That would be a different scenario. Well, wait, no, if it's a drum line, isn't that, uh, isn't that like marching band, like marching drums? Yeah, well, that would be good too, but not very groovy. That's more <laughs> – you know, it's a, little, it's a little more straight-laced. Yeah, you got to be worried when sharks start doing military formations. <laughs> uh, but whether, I mean, whether due to deliberate human persecution or not, lots of predators and scavengers we know have seen drastic declining populations in the past few hundred years. Uh, according to a study we're about to talk about by O'Brien uh, and, and co-authors, leopards have vanished from about 78 percent of their historic range. African lions are on the decline outside of protected areas. Of uh, 22 vulture species on Earth, 17 are in decline due to human activities. So predators and scavengers are, are having a tougher time than they've ever had. Which is dangerous. And one yeah. of the, the key points really of this episode is that, yeah, you can't – it's not just the monster disappearing from – but it kind of is. You take the monster out of a story and then how much of a story do you really have? If you take Grindel out of Beowulf, what do you have? You're left with just kind of a boring story about a rampaging uh, psychopath. But if you – and likewise, if you take the, the apex predators out of the scenario here, then it, re, then it results in this kind of environmental uh, collapse that we've discussed. Well, here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see an alternate version of Beowulf, like John Gardner's Grendel, mm -hmm. except what happens is after Beowulf kills Grendel, uh, the deer that Grendel normally eat overpopulate the forest and they spread a lot of disease and everybody in Hrothgar's mead hall dies because they all get tick-borne diseases. <laughs> Write it, man. That's Write the it. realistic outcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we'll explore examples like that when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. All right, so I was looking at a paper in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution published this year in 2018 called The Contribution of Predators and Scavengers to Human Well-Being by Christopher J. O'Brien, Alexander Braskowski, Hawthorne Bayer, Neil Carter, James Watson, and Eve McDonald Madden. And so the basic idea of this paper is that it's a huge literature review. It looks at papers from, you know, all over the place to try to find documented examples of ways that predators and scavengers make human life better or removing them demonstrably makes human life worse. 
And so they start off talking about how predators and scavengers provide lots of benefits to humankind, and we rarely recognize this. Like humans and wild predators have undergone a process of co-adaptation in the past few thousand years with some beneficial outcomes for both. But this state of co-adaptation depends on human tolerance of these animals. And as we've seen, this tolerance is not a given. A lot of times we'll put out the drum lines. We'll do wolf culling. Uh, and without predators and scavengers, our world would be much, much worse. Ecological research has shown this in many ways. So, for example, predators regulate the populations of herbivores below them on the food chain, which if allowed to grow unchecked could easily overgraze and destroy plant species important to human life. Uh, another thing is that scavengers consume and dispose of animal carcasses and organic waste that we do not want piling up. Uh, the loss of predators and scavengers can destroy ecosystems by causing, quote, a loss of plant species diversity, biomass, and productivity that in turn affect disease dynamics, carbon sequestration, and wildfire risk. And Robert, this seems to be along the lines of what uh, you were talking about with the wolves in Yellowstone. Yes. And then also uh, sometimes you can estimate the health of an entire ecosystem simply by looking at how the top predators and scavengers are doing. Like they will be – they will sometimes almost be like a data sheet you can check out to see what everything else on the food chain is looking like. And yet, as we mentioned earlier, lots of predator and scavenger species around the world are still in decline due to human behavior, including everything from poaching to culling to ecosystem destruction and to climate change. And there are actually documented cases where people intentionally tolerate predators and scavengers, especially scavengers, because they're aware of their benefits. Like the authors talk about how uh, scavenger, the scavenger of the Egyptian vulture, this is uh, a bird species that's suffering a decline around the world, but there are places in uh, Socotra, Yemen, where they're doing well because the people are aware of the benefits they provide, specifically removing livestock and human waste, which, if not removed, can cause water contamination. Ah. And that's no joke. The, the risks of water contamination due to waste runoff are serious. And this type of contamination is not just something that, say, happens in Yemen. It can happen all over the world and often does. I found a New York Times article from 2009 by Charles Duhigg about uh, the, how the residents around Morrison, Wisconsin, were sickened by contamination of water resources from agricultural waste. Basically, manure breeds parasites and bacteria which flow into the groundwater. And to read a quote from that article, quote, In Morrison, more than 100 wells were polluted by agricultural runoff within a few months, according to local officials. As parasites and bacteria seeped into drinking water, residents suffered from chronic diarrhea, stomach illnesses, and severe ear infections. And then they quote uh, a woman living in the area who said, Sometimes it smells like a barn coming out of the faucet. Ugh. Now, that's, that's not always as much of a bad sign. Robert, have you ever smelled like kind of farty smelling water from a faucet somewhere? Um, I mean, I guess sometimes, you know, you're at the beach and the, you know, beach water can have a, a, a certain odor. I'm not sure if I would say it's, you know, like a, a barn smell or anything. But mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the last place I was where the tap water was like that, but I've definitely smelled it before. It's, it, it is a little disconcerting, even if you know it's probably safe, like you go to brush your teeth and and it smells like uh, Toots for Realsies has haunted your bathroom. <laughs> I can't believe you summoned uh, Toots for Realsies. But uh, no, I mean, of course, the reverse is also true. There are places where the water certainly seems appetizing, but mm. uh, it's uh, not actually drinkable. Exactly. So anything you can do to manage uh, runoff of dangerous waste running into water sources is big. And so a lot of times predators and scavengers, particularly scavengers, can do that. Another example is the uh, Tigray region of Ethiopia, which has spotted hyenas, and the humans of this region tend to tolerate them because the hyenas eat the carcasses of dead livestock as well as unburied human corpses, which reduces the risk of disease in the settlements. And so disease in human settlements is a big part of the benefits provided by predators and scavengers. Some of the biggest diseases we're worried about in the world are zoonotic diseases, diseases that have animal vectors like the Zika virus, uh, strains of flu, you know, avian flu, swine flu, uh, the Ebola virus, Lyme disease. And so there are several ways predators can reduce chances that we catch diseases from animals. One of them is by reducing the density of host populations. And so th the way that works is this. Um, say it's flu season. You want to avoid catching the flu. Uh, what, what, what's a good day look like if you want to avoid catching the flu? Is it like going out to the, the – 
the Cannibal Corpse concert and moshing in the pit, <laughs> or is it going for a walk in the woods by yourself? Uh, well, if you don't want to catch the flu, yeah, go in the woods by yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, density, literal mm-hmm. population density, how much organisms of the conspecifics spend, how much time they spend around each other, how close they get, how much they contact the same surfaces and all that, that's directly related to the spread of the disease. And so if you reduce the density of a population, you reduce the rate at which the disease spreads. So, ah, so to go back to our uh – our Yellowstone example, like yeah. you, if you have the deer just um, just uh, uh, unopposed by predators, they're just hanging out all over with each other, and that that creates a, a more potential for something like this to take off. But if they're if they're patrolled by predators, then they're going to be perhaps more fragmented and mm-hmm. fewer in number because of the uh, the members of their. Uh, their species that are picked off by the predators. Exactly. Thinning out the population of deer could potentially limit the spread of deer-borne diseases. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's also the more direct effect that if you limit the population of an animal, say deer, it will be less likely that any given human in the area is exposed to a deer and thus less likely the disease spreads from the deer to the person. Just a few examples cited by the authors. One is that around Sanjay Gandhi National Park in India, leopard predation on dogs has greatly reduced the frequency of dog bites in the region and thus lowered the incidence of rabies transmission to humans. Uh, Researchers think that generalist predators like foxes can help protect people from Lyme disease by controlling populations of mice since mice are a primary reservoir for ticks carrying the disease. And then uh, we we don't think to be thankful to frog tadpoles. But tadpoles probably play a really important role in limiting the worldwide risk of mosquito-borne diseases like dengue fever because they eat mosquito eggs. Oh, course. I mean, we've, we've kind of looked at this in from the opposite direction that like, you know, why do we have mosquitoes? Well, because actually mosquito larvae are an important part of many, uh, uh, many diets yeah. uh, out there. And yeah, it makes sense too that you'd want the animals that eat those larvae, otherwise explosion of mosquitoes. Exactly. Uh, but also predators and scavengers can reduce our disease risk through a mechanism known as competitive exclusion. And this is basically outcompeting disease hosts for resources or territory. So an example here would be vulture sometimes outcompete stray dogs for the main scavenging niche in and around human settlements. And this can be a good thing for reducing stray dog bites on hum- and human exposure to rabies. And then sometimes removing natural predators and scavengers from a native ecosystem can lead to their automatic replacement by other predators and scavengers, which might be much worse for human health. For example, the authors write uh, that scavengers can replace vultures and the ones that replace them can include gulls, rats, and invasive foxes, all of which can pose risks to humans and can themselves be disease hosts. Because of its nature, if there's a meal to be had, uh, something is going to get in and eat it. And if you wipe out the the predator that's most uh, highly evolved to deal with it, mm-hmm. then somebody else is going to take a shot at it. Wouldn't you rather the the predator that's there to eat the meal be the one that the ecosystem is already adapted around and yeah. thus there's stability to the ecosystem? So there are tons of ways that predators and scavengers limit human exposure to diseases. Uh, but another thing that's interesting is the way that predators apparently increase agricultural output. I mean, a huge amount of agricultural wealth every year is lost to pest species that consume crops. The authors uh, cite a study estimating that 10 to 20 percent of global financial losses in agricultural wealth are due to animal species that come and eat the crops. And that's a huge amount of lost wealth over the, the whole globe. And so current methods of preventing that kind of loss are not always great, right? They often consist of chemical pesticides which frankly are something that that we're still studying and we don't know all of the negative effects of you know many years down the road. Yeah. But but I mean ultimately the the uh the argument here is pretty simple. Like you, something is eating your crops. Mm-hmm. What better way to prevent that from happening than having a a naturally occurring predator to drive them off. Exactly. I mean, this is, I'm trying to keep birds from eating uh, all the figs in my fig tree, mm. and all I have is like a fake owl to to <laughs> set up there next to it. Which oh, you have a scare owl? I do. Yeah. Or wait, a scarecrow? You have a scarecrow owl? Yes. It's it's not a replicant owl like the fabulous one they have in Blade Runner. That one was too expensive. Mm. Mine's the ten dollar model. Uh, its head doesn't even bob. But uh, quick poll: Do you have a favorite killer scarecrow movie? Oh, I mean, they're all kind of terrible, aren't they? Um, 
That's a subgenre that never really caught on like you might think. Well, there's a lot of potential there. They're, they're, they're so creepy. I mean, I guess I love the Scarecrow Batman villain if he counts. Oh, yeah. You know? He's I a mean, good one. Yeah, he, he was well. Uh, I liked him in the animated series. Yes, he was a lot of fun in that too. Yeah, I, I guess there's some, some Scarecrow movie that's coming to mind, but it, I feel like it was a little icky. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the main one that sticks. They often tend to be icky. What I'd much rather have is an actual owl, though. Right. That would just live in my backyard and uh, and scare away uh, an appropriate number of predators. They can have some of the figs. I'm not greedy. Uh, I just want to make sure that I have some, too. Well, I mean, predators like that are important not just for your own personal figs, but for for the crops that sustain economies and that that feed people and that are turned into animal feed and all that kind of stuff that, you know, the backbone of an agricultural economy, uh, like – it has often been speculated by by researchers that species like bats and some birds are the most economically important non-domesticated animals on Earth. And this is because of all of the pest control that they naturally do in the wild on pests that would otherwise eat all of our crops. And so the authors cite research that indicates like uh, the densities of pests like the corn earworm or the cucumber beetle uh, can be suppressed by almost 60 percent by bat communities. And bats can also help suppress the spread of fungus in corn crops. And so this leads to like real dollars saved and, and predatory birds do similar things. They've been shown to be valuable in cacao plantations, saving more than 30 percent of crop output. Speaking of owls, the barn owl is a huge lifesaver when it comes to saving agricultural output. Um, Apparently, according to the author's quote, the barn owl, Tito Alba, has a diet made up of about 99 percent agricultural pest species in agricultural fields of California. Wow. Barn owls are a great uh, species to bring up in this because uh, the barn owl, of course, is normally going to set up shop and, and nest in, um, in it's essentially like a hollowed out tree or mm-hmm. tree trunk kind of a, in, in a situation. But now they're co-adapted. Well, that's right. They, they, they also are fine with, uh, say, an abandoned barn because mm-hmm. uh, this also perfectly replicates the environment they need. But it's kind of a, uh, a domino effect though, right? As, uh, as humans expand, suddenly there are fewer places for them to naturally build their nests. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have uh, you know, empty barns sitting around, then they also don't have a place to, to build their nests. Uh, but this has led uh, many people to put up uh, uh, nesting boxes for barn owls, which is essentially just a, uh, what it sounds like, a, a mm-hmm. box, like a mini portion of a barn that you can just put uh, in the top of a tree to encourage them to roost there. Nice. I'd never heard of that. Yeah, there's a children's book about it. <laughs> I was reading about it about it the other day with my son. Now, I will say I think probably barn owls are not vilified as much as some animals like wolves or... Yeah, I think they're mainly surf- suffering from, uh, you know, incidental habitat loss, which can be sufficient enough to eradicate a species. But yeah, they're not having to deal on top of that with people, uh, you know, essentially raising their pitchforks against the owls. But I mean, when it comes to other noticeable larger predators like dingoes, even they apparently increase agricultural output. They help our farmers too. Like lots of animal ranchers obviously don't like carnivores like dingoes because sometimes they prey on their herds. But Sometimes wild carnivores actually protect herds in pastures where there are also wild herbivores because the dingoes or the other animals like that reduce the number of wild herbivores and thus reduce competition for grazing. Hmm. So, for example, research in Australia has shown that the presence of dingoes can increase agricultural production by reducing populations of red kangaroo, which compete with livestock for grazing land. And a lot of times cattle farmers don't realize this and they'll kill dingoes, but it has been estimated that dingoes significantly increase output biomass per hectare of land. Yeah, if you get rid of all the dingoes, then you're going to have to deal with uh, all these kangaroos. And what are you going to do, just keep killing and killing? Well, yeah, probably. That's kind of what humans do. I guess it could be. Hey, when it comes to your garden, they cite a study, by the way, that says research has shown that skunks reduce pests in North American gardens and increase the yields of those gardens. Oh, wow. So you need to get yourself some skunks. Well, I've certainly heard the argument for uh, possums based in large part on the number of, uh, I believe it's ticks, Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that the average possum will eat. So they might not be much to look look at, but if you have a possum in your yard, it's potentially uh, cutting down on, uh, on 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 some of the uh, the pests you would have to deal with. Oh man, anything that'll get rid of ticks, that'd yeah. be great. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, even <laughs> if it's a possum. <laughs> uh, 
But what about the enemy of my enemy of my enemy, which is your dog or cat? <laughs> well, you know, collateral damage, I guess. But no, this is a good point. This is why uh, one of the reasons why uh, my cat lives indoors now. Yeah, I, I love dogs and cats, but I mean, it is certainly true that that domesticated dogs and cats can really mess up an ecosystem if released upon the wild. Oh, yeah, I think about this a lot. In our neck of the woods, uh, we have a lot of feral cats. Yeah, uh, a pretty common occurrence, I think, uh, uh, in North America. And it, yeah, they're they are they are super they are little super predators of their, in their own way. Like they are able to just ravage, uh, especially the bird population. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we had Jason Ward, the local Atlanta bird expert oh, yeah. on the podcast, he talked to us a lot about the damage done by just releasing cats and letting them go outside. Yeah, they're driving off our possums, and they're not eating any of the ticks. That's the disgusting part. That's a good point. Why don't the cats just eat the ticks directly? That would be great. <laughs> but of course, they'll never comply. Anyway, so uh, there, we don't stop there. Okay, so predators and scavengers clearly reduce disease risk and disease spread among animals and among humans. They benefit agriculture. They apparently uh, actually benefit human life in urban areas in plenty of ways. Like, so, so there are plenty of things that cause humans and wild animals to come into contact. Of course, expanding human settlements and habitat destruction would be a big part of that. Yeah, those two go hand in hand. Uh, but then, of course, animals are often attracted to high-calorie foods and shelter, and those are available in abundance in human settlements. But there are tons of ways that predators and scavengers in urban areas, even within human settlements, are beneficial, including removing waste and carcasses. This happens all the time. Uh, Like golden jackals in Serbia apparently remove just tons of animal waste, uh, including road-killed animals and stuff like that. And then also you've got the fact that in many urban areas, natural predators control populations of other animals that directly cause harm to humans – Here's a big one you might not consider. Natural predators reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. Oh, well, this makes sense as well because what are all these excess uh, prey animals doing but running in front of my car? Uh, They they often are. So the authors write, quote, One study found that the potential recolonization of cougars over a 30-year period in the eastern USA would reduce deer populations and thereby curtail deer vehicle collisions by 22 percent. The authors estimated that this reduction in collisions would result in 155 fewer human deaths, 21,400 fewer human injuries, and $213 billion in saved costs. If those estimates are right, uh, that's a heck of a lot of damage just caused by deer getting in front of your car. Yeah. And I have been in I have been in the vehicle, uh, if I remember correctly, on, on two different incidents when I've uh, the vehicle has hit a deer in really? some way, shape, or form. In one case, the deer had already been hit, and it was just like coming over a hill, and mm-hmm. there it was, and like the oh. car went right over it. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I I feel like this is a this is a, an increasingly common occurrence if you're doing any amount of driving outside of an urban environment, and even even within an urban environment, you're still facing the risk of those squirrels. Uh, or, you know, various uh, stray animals that may be running out in front of your vehicle. Well, depending on what kind of urban environment it is, there there are still sometimes yeah. even deer. I mean, I think about how often you see uh, deer in some cities in Tennessee. Oh, certainly. One funny note that I that was in this paper was that apparently it, reintroducing predators can even reduce auto insurance premiums in affected areas because huh. they, you know, reduce the risk. I wonder if I can uh, contact uh, my uh, my insurance company and say, look, I reintroduced a, a, a mountain lion into I, my neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, can I, you bring my, uh, my my premium down a little bit? <laughs> Plan on releasing wolves. Yeah. Uh, how will that affect my rate? No, I, I bet they won't do it on an individual basis, unfortunately. But yeah, so we've got this issue where we know that predators and scavengers provide immense benefits to humans. Of course, they provide benefits to the ecosystems themselves, but they provide immense benefits to to human economies, to human public health, all of that. And yet we are going to continue to have these conflicts because predators are sometimes ferocious. They will sometimes attack our, our domesticated animals and all that. They will sometimes attack humans as long as there are going to be humans and predators and scavengers in these shared zones, these sort of uh, middle zones where both humans and predators can inhabit. 
there will be these conflicts and yet we don't want to eliminate them. So part of the question is how do you get people to understand that even though occasionally there will be wolf attacks on people and stuff like that, that is massively counterbalanced by the benefits provided by these creatures? Yeah, you have to you have to weigh all the benefits and not just uh, you know overreact to one media report about uh, uh, you know a predation scenario involving a human infant as as shocking and horrible as that can be. Yeah, um, you, know, you know, obviously, I mean, it's still not a reason to say set out to destroy all crocodiles or all wolves. Right, and and part of the problem is that media reports can just even without intending to do it, sensationalize predators. Like the, one, one thing I often think about is the type of media story that doesn't say we should kill all predators, but it just makes a media story out of predator sighting in a human area. Yeah, you know, because like, otherwise— There's a wolf in the neighborhood. Yeah, because otherwise, when is the shark making the news? It's making the news because it was seen in a human swimming area, mm-hmm. uh, a human caught it you know, or killed it, or the reverse happened, of course. It, it attacked or killed a human. There, Yeah, there is no story about the thousands of sharks that swam by without anybody noticing them. Right. And you make a good point that very often the point of conflict here arises because of human aggression, not because of the aggression of the animal. Or even if it's not aggression, uh, it's uh, – if you've – if you, we've all heard, you know, do not feed the wild animals. Yeah, uh, which is wonderful advice uh, for a number of reasons. But if it's a if it's a prey species, especially if it's a species that that could potentially attack a human, then you should not do anything to to shrink the natural distance between our species. Right. So, I mean, I think one thing in this space that's important is trying to find. Smart strategies, smart strategies that don't involve just killing predators and scavengers outright because we don't like them or because there was one unfortunate point of uh, conflict between humans and whatever the species is that's local. But finding ways to try to reduce encounters between Mm -hmm. humans and humans and their livestock in these species while allowing the species to live. The example you mentioned earlier with just like being able to to paint eyes on the back of cattle that, that sounds like a brilliant example of a solution there. Yeah, make the make the the the, the humans cattle less appealing, slightly less appealing maybe even. Uh, but then the reverse is well the lions then are going to hopefully go eat other things, uh, other prey animals that are still allowed to reside in the the natural environment. Yeah. Of course not destroying natural habitats helps as well. Yes. Yeah, the, the, to, to whatever to the, the more we unbalance a given environment, like the more complicated it is to try and figure out what the new balance is, or certainly to try and achieve anything like the old balance. But anyway, if so, summary of all that, uh, you've got the disease control, you've got agricultural protection, you've got all these direct benefits on human life, like reducing uh, auto collisions or disposing of waste. There are just tons of ways that predators and scavengers are benefiting your life and benefiting human civilization in ways that you don't even appreciate or understand that are completely invisible to you, but without them, the world would be so much worse. And so I think we should just take a moment to appreciate the nasty animals. Indeed. Here's to you, nasty animals. Let's take a break. And when we come back, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the nastiest animal of all. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about how Even despite our mythologies and despite some religious beliefs and all that, a world without predation is probably not a good world. That's not a place where you'd want to live. Predation does so many important things. It plays an important ecological role. But I want to think about another way that a world without predation is probably not a world you want to live in because I have a hard time imagining how a planet that never evolved predation would ever evolve intelligence. Indeed. I mean, it's difficult to imagine a human level or greater intelligence emerging in the absence of predation. Our best examples of non-human intelligence are either predators that have to engage in advanced tactics and behaviors to catch prey uh, and or utilize these skills to avoid predation themselves. And curiously enough, humans seem to stand as as an example of both. Yeah, exactly. I mean, almost everything we call intelligence, I think, has something to do with time, mm-hmm. right? It has to do with the speed at which you your body does something. An organism that was able to uh, avoid a you know an oncoming object, but it took a thousand years to do so. Would you call that intelligence? Maybe. I mean, it seems like it'd be hard to do. 
But it seems to me like very much an important part of what intelligence is, is that it has to do with the speed of solutions to, to problems. Right. And the speed, at, yeah, the speed at which it needs to find a solution to that problem. Yeah. Because uh, something reacting at the level you were talking about, uh, you know, maybe not quite the same level, but you can sit, look at a, an oak tree mm-hmm. and say, well, the oak tree has – its reflexes are not nearly as, uh, as quick as those of, say, uh, you know, a feral cat. Yeah. Uh, but they are both effectively solving the problems that are necessary to uh, to existing. Yeah, and speed just pretty much, it seems clear, needs to exist in the world because predation exists. Right. Because Spe- it's yeah. kind of this, this arms race of speedy reactions. Yeah. You know, in a fun bit of uh, synchronicity, uh, we recorded this episode the same week as our uh, 50th anniversary celebration of 2001, A Space Odyssey. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the for- first portion of that film, The Dawn of Man, uh, that we were discussing, you know, follows a population of hominids as they, they scrape by on hunter-gatherer existence, falling to predation from big cats from time to time. Uh, but then with a little help from uh, an extraterrestrial sentinel, they take their first steps towards mastery of the planet and the use of weapons. Yeah, the monolith arrives, then they suddenly realize, hey, I can use a taper femur as a as a club. But before that, the big cat, I believe it's a leopard uh, yeah. in, in the movie. It's a real leopard attacking uh, somebody in, a, in an ape costume. And it's frightening to watch. Yeah. Uh, just, and I'm not just saying it because I – I mean on two levels because on one level – the scene is very convincing. And then on another level, I'm thinking, oh, crap, that's a guy in an ape suit and a real carnivore just jumped on him. Yeah. I can't help but have a, like a primal uh, response to that. It's scary. Yeah. So fossil evidence does inform us that early humans fell to cave lions, to saber-toothed cats, and false saber-toothed cats. But they were also eaten by other animals, including giant hyenas eagles, snakes, other primates, and as Rob Dunn pointed out in a 2012 Slate article about about fear, uh, we even fell to giant predatory kangaroos. No. Yes. the Predatory uh, kangaroos? Yeah, the occulta data, I believe it's uh, it's called. I have never even heard of this as far as I remember. Now I'm embarrassed if you've told me on the show before and I forgot. No, but. I do not think predatory kangaroos have come up before. Uh, and to call it a kangaroo, I've seen illustrations of what it might have looked like, and it, it doesn't straight up look like a fanged kangaroo kangaroo or anything. But uh, but still, similar creature. So uh, the evidence seems to support the idea that that creatures like this, not just the kangaroo, but big cats, etc., feasted on human flesh uh, well into the most recent 100,000 years of human history. And we see this reflected in the lives of modern primates as well. Uh, in places where large predators still haunt the shadows of, uh, primi- of primate habitats, the young are still preyed upon. And where humans dwell alongside large carnivores, the young and occasionally even adults may fall to predation. Uh, the world, th- this world is also still reflected in our, 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 our fight-or-flight responses, uh, mm-hmm. in the anxieties that, we, that define our lives, and in our nightmares, in our fantasies, in our fears. I mean, really, we think back to that, that lion man, the first monster. Like, it, it, it makes so much sense that that should be, like, the, early, the earliest known, um, uh, you know, physical manifestation of our fears, that we would actually, like, craft that. Well, I mean, if you go by well, – one thing we talked about recently as well is the idea of uh, the, the hyperactive agency detection device. That is a hypothesis about, you know, where our, our a tendency to attribute agency to inanimate objects mm-hmm. comes from. And But that says, you know, the things we really need to worry about, there are two main things – animals and other humans. Right. And if you combine the properties of the two, you've essentially got like the ultimate thing to be scared of. Yes. It's part human. It's part animal predator. It's both of the things that worry us the most. Now, this is interesting too because when we think about our our ancient ancestors, we do tend to think about these two things, right? Warlike abilities towards self uh, and, and their ability to fight back against predators and, of course, prey on other beings. I mean, everything that's expressed in that opening uh, uh, segment of 2001, A Space Odyssey. But some anthropologists, such as uh, uh, Robert W. Sussman, uh, the late Robert W. Sussman, I believe he passed away a few years ago, uh, he argued that it was our that it was possibly not our ability uh, to wage war against uh, others, but rather our ability to cooperate with one another that enabled us to survive uh, that era uh, that we uh, live through as a prey species. Oh, I think there's tons of evidence that that social cooperation was a major factor in shaping mm-hmm. the animals we are today. So there we were, this this prey species, barely hanging on, but then developing the uh, the social connections and the technology to fight back against predators, to sort of 
over time remove ourselves uh, from full participation in the food chain. Um, and in, in doing so, we've become something more than just a predator. Uh, we've become kind of a super predator. Uh, as Sarah Zelinsky pointed out in a 2015 Smithsonian.com article, humans are unlike any other predator on the planet. Uh, in, in, in ways that, that one might not instantly think. You know, obviously we use guns and no other creature uses guns. You know, we, we poison, uh, we do all these other tactics. But everywhere else, predators prey upon the young uh, in particular. But humans kill healthy adults, uh, especially when it comes to land carnivores and fish. Mm. And those adults, she, she drives home in the article, these are the reproductive capital of the species. So you know these news stories that uh, talk about the tragedy of someone being struck down in their the prime of their life? Yeah. Well, that's that's the sob story for most of the animals that humans kill. And it, it, while, again, the, the natural predation model is for things that have not achieved that level um, or they have fallen off on the other side, the young or the old. And this is especially destructive for long-lived and late-producing species, of course. Yeah. One example of all this uh, that Zelensky brings up is the stickleback. Uh, it's a fish that is just surrounded by predators. It just – it has all the enemies. Uh, but the enemies mostly ex- – mo- almost exclusively feed on young fries and sub-adults. Only 5 percent of the reproductively valuable adults are preyed upon each year. And that's a sharp contrast to commercial fishing where 40 to 80 percent of the biomass is netted and it's predominantly reproductive adults. So from like an energy and reproductive standpoint, our kind of hunting and trapping and fishing and all that is putting a different pressure on wild populations than normal predation would. Yes. And maybe a pressure that those wild populations are are not in a position to sustain. Thomas Reimchen of the University of Victoria researched this uh, this topic back in the 1970s and found that while humans killed adult herbivores at uh, about the same rate as non-human predators, quote, the harvest of adult carnivores by humans was nine times that of other large carnivores, which were mostly killing each other through competition. Wow. And the marine situation, uh, according to uh, Zelensky, is even worse. She says, marine predators harvest about 1% of adult biomass each year. Humans take a median of 14% and as much as 80% or more in extreme cases. So, yeah, technology not only allowed us to sort of escape from the food chain, it allowed us to escape from the the limits of the natural prey-predator dynamic. That's really interesting. So even while we can make the point that predators are Good and mm-hmm. predators are very important for ecosystem health, and it, we should not be trying to eliminate them to make the world better. There are also very bad ways to be a predator. I mean, you can see that even in non-human animals, just when the wrong kind of invasive predator is introduced to an ecosystem and see the havoc it wreaks. Right. Yeah. Everything's out of balance. Yeah. But there can also be these these worldwide, world-ranging super predators like us. That just we don't play by the rules. Right. We're playing with God code enabled, you know, which means we can just kill every creature on a level and not have to, you know, whereas otherwise the game mechanics would maybe dictate that you could only maybe kill 35 percent of the enemies on a given level and actually make it to the end. We're the real dingoes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> we are the real dingas. But but one of the big questions is, you know, what are we going to to be? You know, can we can we step down from the super threat predator throne? Can we actually uh implement more sustainable ways of of preying upon other animals uh in our world? And likewise, can we find more sustainable ways to deal with other predators that might be threatening the the uh, um, the the uh, environment that we have already unbalanced with our uh, domesticated animals and our crops and our the expansion of our territory, uh, you know, can we become something that's ultimately more more humbler and more sustainable ourselves? It's a great question. I mean, how how to be a predator that knows it's a predator and yeah. recognizes its power? Yeah, there's a, a wonderful quote from uh, George Monbiot again. Uh, and this is from a 2014 Guardian article titled uh, Destroyer of Worlds. He writes, is this all we are, a diminutive monster that can leave no door closed, no hiding place intact, that is now doing to the great beasts of the sea what we did so long ago to the great beasts of the land? Or can we stop? Can we use our ingenuity, which for two million years has turned so inventively to destruction, to defy our evolutionary history? I think we obviously can. The question is, will we? Yeah. 
I mean, we, we, we have the ability to defy our evolutionary imperatives. We do it every time we do something uh, self-sacrificing for a stranger or every time people use contraception or, yeah. you know, anything. And so, like, we, we certainly have the power to do more than just di- what is dictated by our genes. But, the you know, in any given situation, will people do it? And that's the challenge. Yeah, that's the challenge today. That's the challenge going forward. But I think the it is important to put the emphasis on today as well because it's all too easy just to say, well, that sounds like quite a problem. Uh, hopefully somebody will figure that out <laughs> in the years to come. Or, yeah, we'll get it. We're, we're, humans are great. We'll figure it out. Hopefully we will. And I, I'm, I'm going to choose to be hopeful about it because, you know, I, I can, we can only act as, as optimists. If we're, if we're pessimists about it, then what can we do? Yeah. And if you want to be optimistic about our future, can a predator like us uh, learn to live within its means and reform? You've got to at least acknowledge the base fact that, hey, predators ain't so bad. Yeah, acknowledge that they have an essential role to play in our environment. And scavengers, too. We shouldn't leave out scavengers. Yeah, yeah. The scavengers are also, they're the cleanup crew. They're less less glamorous, but uh, maybe even more useful. Yeah. All right, so there you have it, uh, the predator, the scavenger. Uh, hopefully this has uh, forced you to uh, reevaluate their roles. Uh, as always, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You can just take a journey back through time there and listen to, to uh, a number of past episodes that have also dealt with biology and uh, environmental issues and uh, the future and, and, and past of our species. Uh, you'll also find links out to our various social media accounts there. And hey, if you want to support the show, uh, we urge you to rate and review it wherever you have the power to do so. Deep thanks, as always, to our excellent audience. Audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly, to let us know feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.